Malachi 2, verses 10 through 16. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. This is the word of the Lord. All right, let's pray together. Father God, what a joy it is to gather as your people this morning. God, a people called out of darkness and into your glorious light. God, you have chosen, adopted, redeemed, and sent us out into the world to proclaim your love and your glory to the ends of the earth. God, help us be a faithful people by your power and for your glory. Amen. Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? Fantastic. You're the healthy ones, right? Like my kids, they they became teenagers and they stopped being sick. Like I didn't know they could still get sick. And I have like multiple sick kids at the moment and I know a lot of other people do. So they can get sick even when they're teenagers. I didn't know. I'm new to this, but that is possible. It's happened. Um, And if you're new or you haven't been around as you might have figured out by now, we are walking through the book of Malachi. And it's a little outside of the box sometimes because it's, it's, it's a hard book. There's hard things. We have to sometimes dig a little bit for the encouragement, but I think as we've seen over the weeks, even in a text like today's, there is a lot of encouragement and there's a lot of conviction. And so I am excited. We're, I think, halfway through the book of Malachi. So we're getting there. And last week, uh, when John preached, we talked about genuine leadership. And we saw that the result of priestly failure, that is, of leaders not leading faithfully, is the degradation of the community. As we read in verse 8, But you, speaking to the priests, but you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. So the result of leaders not preaching the truth and power and glory of God is that many will be caused to stumble. 
when the reality of man's sinfulness and God's perfect holiness is not taught, the transforming power of God's truth is choked out in the lives of the people. And we do a lot of leadership training. If you've sat through it, you know that I am a firm believer that the health of any church will always be a reflection of the leadership. And that's a scary reality for those who lead. Hebrews chapter 13 says that we, the leaders, will give an account for you before God. That's scary. That's why James says not many of you should become teachers. For you know those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So that doesn't mean that leaders are called to be perfect. If we get it in our heads, that, that, then things are going to go south quick, right? Perfect leader. That's not going to happen. If I try and present myself as if I have everything together, as if I don't struggle with sin, it's just a matter of time before everything comes crashing down. And if you think that God's call on your life as a leader in your home or in your workplace or among this community is about presenting yourself as a picture of sinless perfection, you have believed a lie. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. The message of the gospel is not that Christians are perfect, but that Christ is perfect. And the call of the gospel is a call to repentance and faith. It's a call to lead in humility, to lead out of a dependence upon God, to lead in struggling well against the ever-present pressure of sin and deception in our lives. The issue with the Israelites in Malachi was not just that they were sinful. That's a given for all of us. The overarching issue wasn't their struggle with sin, but their unrepentant hearts. They were openly disobeying God's commands, and their leaders were facilitating and even encouraging it. And in today's text, God's going to shift the focus from the leaders last week to the people. Because while there was a priestly failure in Israel... That failure did not excuse the people of God from their own guilt any more than the failure of many leaders in our modern-day churches excuse the people that follow them. The reality is, probably more for us than the Israelites, is we choose who we will follow. We choose who we will listen to and where we will seek wisdom. And Paul warns us in 2 Timothy chapter 4 about the direction many in our society will choose. He says the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. You see, if you look hard enough, you can always find a teacher who will tell you what you want to hear. 
There are plenty of leaders who have succumbed to the allure of people-pleasing and empire-building. They will give you what your itching ears want to hear because they want you to follow them more than they want you to follow Jesus. And most people, unfortunately, don't want to hear about the holy, powerful, sometimes angry God that we meet in Malachi. They don't want the spotlight to shine on their sin and brokenness and need for a Savior. And the reality is that as leaders, this stuff isn't fun to preach. It wasn't fun for Malachi the prophet to say. But this is the Word of God. The God who demands perfect righteousness. The God who enacts perfect judgment out of perfect anger. He is the same God who sent Christ as a perfect sacrifice because of his perfect love. The harsh reality of the book of Malachi is meant to lead us to repentance. It's meant to shine the spotlight on our utter inability to live the perfect righteousness that is required for us by God and to point us to the amazing grace and love of our Father. The God who sent Jesus Christ in our place. He was obedient because we couldn't be. He was without sin because we couldn't be. He was the perfect, spotless sacrifice. Once for all, because there was no amount of goats or lambs that could be sacrificed to cover the offense of our sinfulness. And so... As we dive into some strong rebuke from God in our text today, I want to be very clear about one thing. There, there is no sin, past or present, that is beyond the reach of God's grace. That's what I want you to hear this morning, even as we get to some uncomfortable topics. There is no sin that cannot be covered by the blood of Jesus. The only thing that can keep you from the mercy and the love of Jesus Christ, the only thing that will bar you from his presence is an unrepentant heart. It is the prideful denial that you are in need of a Savior. That's it. Jesus is willing and able and ready to forgive, and the promise is that everyone... The Greek word there, it translates as everyone. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And you can be super reformed. That's still in the Bible. Everyone. So with that said, the tone of our text today is really one of loss and pain. It's about the ravaging effects of sin and selfishness in a community when people are not living in light of God's truth. It's a sad account of people who are coming to the altar of God with tears streaming down their faces only to have the Lord turn away in displeasure. We read in verse 13, You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, 
because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hands. We kind of know why after the last several weeks, but they seem not to. So what's going on? That's what they ask. Why does he not? Why does he not accept our offering? And through the prophet Malachi, the Lord illuminates the reason he was rejecting their religious efforts. And he accuses them of dealing faithlessly. It's this Hebrew word, bagad, B-A-G-A-D, if you transliterate it. And it appears five times in these six verses, and it means to act deceitfully or treacherously. It is the opposite of acting with integrity and dependability. God was no longer accepting their offering because of their faithlessness. And there's three specific areas of life that Malachi points out in our text where these Israelites were acting faithlessly or treacherously. They were faithless to one another in their relationships inside of the community. They were faithless to God by marrying unbelievers. And they were faithless in their marriages by divorcing the wife of their youth. And each of these could obviously be a sermon of its own, but I want to kind of pull them all together with this idea of covenant faithfulness. And the sin that runs through each of these areas of life is a, a failure to keep trust, a failure to keep commitments. It is the sin of breaking covenant. See, the will of God is plain from these verses. His will is that we not be faithless, but rather that we remain faithful to our covenants. Because our God is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. He takes covenants very seriously. And we are His ambassadors. We represent Christ the culmination of God's covenant faithfulness to this world. And we read in our text today, when we are faithless to one another, we profane the covenant and the holiness of God. Beginning in verse 10, we read, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another? profaning the covenant of our fathers. So from the beginning, Malachi points us to the unity that we share as the children of God. We all have one father. So the question our text poses today is not so much about salvation. He's speaking to the chosen people. Remember the beginning? I love you. I have always loved you. I will continue to love you, but I have no pleasure in you. So what is at stake in our text isn't salvation, but the presence and the pleasure of God in our lives. Covenants matter. Relationships matter. Reconciliation matters. Forgiveness matters. They all play a part in how we will experience the presence of God in our daily lives. What Malachi does with this keyword faithlessness 
is to show that community life is intended to be ordered by faithful fulfillment of promises and oaths. The peace and prosperity and joy inside the community, what the Old Testament calls shalom, is held together by a deep spirit of covenant keeping that saturates the community. The strength of a healthy community and healthy relationships is rooted in the trustworthiness of people. It is in agreement by the people to share life, to struggle together, to look out for the interests of one another, to seek the good of others, even over ourselves. This is why when you join this church, we call it covenant membership. You're not joining a health club. And the reality is that what happens in this community is not first and foremost about you or me. It's about a people who are struggling together to be faithful to God, to be faithful to His call on our lives as His children, as His covenant people. So if you read our membership covenant, there are expectations on you as part of this community. And there are expectations that you should have on those of us who lead. You're not committing to a set of tasks, but to a people, and ultimately to God. And when one person struggles, we all struggle. When one celebrates, we all celebrate. And when one mourns, we all mourn. That's what Paul says in Romans 12, verse 5. We, that is the church, though many, are one body in Christ. And individually, we are members of one another. The health of this community is rooted in covenant faithfulness. It's rooted in living out our commitment to God and to one another. And living out this type of community is hard inside of a culture that is ruled by individualism. But without covenant faithfulness, true community and genuine relationships are impossible. We must allow the Holy Spirit to reprogram our hearts to see the value and the necessity and the blessing the body of believers is. Because the alternative way that people try and live in community, what's pervasive in our culture, is the opposite of covenantal love and order. It's what you might call the disorder of self-indulgence. Commitment-making and commitment-keeping is replaced by the whim of feelings and impulses. The moral foundation of covenant faithfulness and commitment is replaced by the shifting sands of personal gratification. This is the reality that our, our culture presents. Everything in life is about serving and pleasing and satisfying you. Friends remain in your good standing as long as they benefit you and uplift you. Commitments are honored to the extent that they serve you or your desires. 
And when they fail to offer the emotional satisfaction or physical pleasure that we desire, our culture says we are fully justified in backing out of whatever commitments we might have. Because it's about you and your happiness. We live in a time where individual desires are glorified above all else where commitments and responsibilities take a backseat to pleasure and comfort. If you get pregnant and a kid doesn't fit into your life plan, just abort. If your secretary at work is more appealing than your wife, just divorce her. If caring for your aging parent interferes with your retirement plan, stick them in a nursing home. If the church you attend isn't providing you with the goods and services you want, just find another one. This is the message of our culture. Your pleasure is more important than your commitment. Your satisfaction is more important than your responsibility. And what we need to realize, what we talk about in our foundations class here and on a pretty regular basis, is that our individual faithfulness affects the entire community. The decisions you make, the decisions I make, in our personal lives affect the people we have covenanted with. And I know that is a level of intrusion into our autonomy that this culture can't handle. But that is what it means to be the people of God. As Paul said, we are one body. We are members of one another. Your presence and your faithfulness are necessary for the health of the whole body. So Malachi starts there. He starts by pointing to this general faithlessness inside of the community. He says, why? Why are we faithless to one another? And then he moves on to two very specific areas that the Israelites were being faithless or dealing treacherously. And first he says they were marrying unbelievers. In verse 11, Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary, literally profaned the holiness of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. So the issue here is not a racial problem, but a faith problem. The men of Judah were marrying women who did not love and trust and follow the one true God. They were marrying the daughters of foreign gods. And the point of this verse is that if we claim to love God with all our hearts and souls and mind and strength and then willfully choose to unite ourselves with an unbeliever in the most intimate and personal union on earth, or really willfully disobey God in any commandment he's given, we profane the holiness of God. What we're saying is that our desire for human intimacy and our emotional drive is more important than the holiness and the sufficiency of God in our lives. There's, there's no other way to slice that. My feelings are more important than God's sufficiency. 
And God calls this choice an abomination. Right? That's bad. Malachi makes a big deal about marrying unbelievers because it points to a heart that does not treasure or trust in God. It is faithlessness to the covenant of God. It defames his holiness. But I want to be clear what this text is not saying. It's not saying that if you're married to an unbeliever, you should get out. It's not saying that. Paul is clear in 1 Corinthians 7 that you should not seek a divorce. Nor is our text saying that it's impossible for an unbelieving spouse to become a believer. Obviously, it's possible, and that is what we should be praying towards. And in 1 Peter 3, we're told that if you're married to an unbeliever or an unbelieving spouse, the way you love them and your humility and your kindness should point them to Jesus. So what I hope you hear from this text today is that if the choice of marriage partner still lies before you, teenagers, creepy, I got some of them, it's weird to even say that that choice is coming one day, we're going to pretend like it's not, but as your pastor, settle in your minds now that you will marry someone who loves Jesus like you do. It is for your good. And it's a command of the Lord. And God's commands are for your good. They're for your peace and your joy. Now, I assure you that does not mean that marriage will be easy, but with the foundation of Christ, you will have everything you need in life you will have it. So the second area Mal- Malachi points out where the people were acting faithlessly was divorce. Verse 16 says, The man who does not love his wife but divorces her says, The Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. And that's an interesting phrase. I read one person that said, translated that phrase as defiling one's character with violent wrongdoing. So God is refusing to accept the offering of the people because as we read in verse 14, the Lord was witness to the covenant between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, The reason that divorce kindles God's wrath is that marriage is a covenant. This life together is not rooted in the the, the shifting sands of emotional satisfaction, but the rock of covenantal commitment. The Lord was witness to the covenant between you and the wife of your youth. I, I, Patrick, take you, Cheryl, to be my wife. I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your long-loving, faithful husband as long as I live. It's a covenant before God. Not as long as we're both happy or healthy or satisfied. Not as long as you look young and dress the way I like or prepare the right meals. As long as we both shall live, period. And when God stands as witness to the covenant promise of marriage, it becomes more than merely a human agreement. God is not a passive bystander in the wedding ceremony. 
He seals, confirms, and records it in heaven. Verse, verse 15 says, Did he not make them one with a portion of his spirit in their union? I don't know what that means, but that sounds awesome. Right? And hear me when I say this. There are situations in this broken, messed up, sinful world where divorce, divorce is unavoidable. There are situations where you need to get out of a marriage. But the majority of divorces inside of the church are neither of those things. They're not beyond reconciliation in the eyes of God. What the world calls unreconcilable differences, God calls faithlessness. The reality is that most divorces occur because people value their comfort over their covenant. They value their feelings and emotions over the commitment to God and their spouse. They would rather profane the name of God by breaking their covenant than travel the long, hard road of sanctification and reconciliation. And listen, there are people in this church and pretty much every church on the planet who have a divorce in their past. I know that. The intention of this text is not to condemn you for past things. As I said at the beginning, there is nothing in our past that the blood of Jesus cannot cover when we come to him in repentance. The grace of Christ is sufficient for you. And if you're still married and you're struggling, I hope you see this text as a warning and a plea. Malachi says, guard yourself in your spirit. Guard yourself. Don't be faithless to the wife or the husband of your youth. The Israelites chose faithlessness. They rejected God with their lives, and then they came to the altar expecting peace and joy in his presence. But all of their weeping and groaning at the altar was not godly grief. They were not grieved because they were grieved because God's presence was far from them. They were grieved because they were not experiencing his blessings. They were grieved because they really loved all that God did for them. But they didn't love or honor or worship God with their hearts. They wanted the stuff. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 says, Godly grief produces repentance. Godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Their grief before the altar of God did not lead them to repentance. It didn't open their eyes to their sinfulness and faithlessness and their need for the mercy of God. There was no ownership of their sin. They were not humbling themselves before God as their father and master, but rather seeking to do the minimum required to get what they truly loved, his gifts and blessing and favor. They thought they could live their lives however they wanted. They thought they could neglect God in their relationships and then roll up to the altar on Sunday and expect his nearness. They were faithless to God, faithless in the community, faithless in their marriages, 
And God says, I will not accept your worship. I take no pleasure in you. This is an eye-opening reminder for the church. God loves you. God desires your worship. He wants what's best for you, but our experience of his presence in our lives is directly connected to our covenant faithfulness. How you love your spouse affects your relationship with God. How you keep your commitments affects your relationship with God. How you invest in the life of this community will affect your relationship with God. And I I get it. Some of you have been nursing some bitterness towards your spouse for a long time because they're hard to love. They're selfish and prideful. And I mean, they've just failed a lot. Or maybe you haven't forgiven that friend or family member because they hurt you and they don't deserve your forgiveness. Or you don't invest in the community because you've put yourself out there before and been disappointed. You've been burned by the church in the past. Faithfulness to God's call on our lives is not worth it because it could be costly. It could be hard. We may get hurt. So we choose faithlessness in certain areas. From a worldly perspective, these responses to being wrong make perfect sense. I get it. But in light of the gospel reality in which we live as the children of God, God calls this faithlessness. It's treacherous. God's covenant with us is a covenant of grace. The only reason we can come before God at all is because Christ bore our sin on the cross. He died in our place. The only way we can live faithfully for him in our marriages and our friendships and in this community is when we die to ourselves and follow him. How can we, who have been forgiven so much, withhold forgiveness from anyone? How can we, who have been reconciled to God through the death of Jesus Christ, refuse to seek reconciliation at all costs? How can we look at our spouse and see only their sin? How can we look at those who God has united us with in this community and harbor bitterness or unforgiveness when God looks at us and sees the righteousness of Jesus? So let me end how I began. There is no sin so deep no history so dark that the blood of Jesus cannot cover. The only thing that can disqualify you from God's offering of salvation and life is an unrepentant heart. And it is the same thing that will keep us from experiencing his presence day to day. It is unrepentance. A heart that fails to give or receive forgiveness. So let us be a people who rejoice in the forgiveness that we have experienced in Christ and let us find joy in showing that forgiveness to others as we walk faithfully before our God. Let's pray together. Father God,
We praise you this morning for your great faithfulness. God, that even when we struggle and doubt and are faithless, we are not without hope. We are not condemned in our sin because you made a way for us to be reconciled through Jesus Christ because of your covenant faithfulness. God, let us not neglect such a great salvation. Make us a people who are quick to repent, quick to turn and trust in you, quick to seek reconciliation, quick to offer forgiveness. Because this is what we have experienced from you through Jesus Christ. And this is the call on our lives as your people. In your name we pray. Amen.